welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello, I'm Burhan Kabai, Head of Content at OMFIF Sovereign Debt Institute. Uh, and for this podcast, I'm joined by Brian Manguero, Portfolio Manager for Global Fixed Income and Currencies at Bearings, for a discussion on what's been happening in the gilt market. It's been quite an interesting few days, few weeks, really. It hasn't really disappointed when it comes to sort of headlines and uh, things to talk about. Um, firstly, Brian, thanks for joining me. Um, let's get straight into it then. What's, what have you made of the real surge in uh, gilt yields in the, in the recent days and weeks? Uh, obviously, we've seen the two-year gilts. You know, break the highest level we've seen in 15 years. There's been stubbornly high inflation, which means the BOE is, is going to have to keep on hiking rates for, for you know, a long time ahead. But is there anything else behind this? I mean, are investors losing confidence in uh, the UK and the uncertainty on the development of the BOE's rate path? Thank you for having me. So there are a lot of uh, things to talk about, and you've asked a few questions which we can address one by one. But first, the surge has been quite dramatic. And and guilds have almost, I think, underperformed most uh, most developed markets. And when you look at the long end, yields are testing, you know, those uh, September 2022 levels when we had that quality budget disaster or whatever characterization you want to put to it. So that move has been, uh, yeah, it surprised quite a few of us, but equally a lot of fun uh, sales side guys have been commenting that it's coming through. So, yeah, that it, it's, it's been painful to say the least. Now, the reasons why uh, yields, UK yields surged, there are several. And more often when you start finding five, six reasons as to why something has happened, it actually means that there's little understanding as to why it's happening. But uh, if you ask me that there are two key, maybe three th- key things that I'm focusing on. So first is, is the Bank of England rate path, which is a feed through from inflation. So UK inflation is not falling as fast as is what we're seeing in other major regions. And that has created this fear of stagflation and the fact that the Bank of England will have to hike much higher. And currently markets are pricing in about 6% terminal rate. So that that move from a 4% terminal rate expectation to 6% terminal rate expectation, that is what has really moved the markets quite big time. So sticky inflation, at least compared to other major geographical regions like the US and Europe, uh, and the expectation that the Bank of England will have to push rates much higher. That's the first reason. The second reason is around issuance. But this is to me it's 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 not a point that I would really amplify, but the bottom line is that you are having the Bank of England doing quantitative tightening that's withdrawing liquidity from the system, and not only that they're actually selling actively selling gills to the market, so that's the first thing. Then you now have the regular issuance which is coming through that's also draining liquidity, and not only that this regular issuance is also more than what markets anticipated that's another problem. And then when I look at the quarterly financial flows data, at the moment, it's, it's going back up to April, so slightly outdated. It shows that foreign participation of or, uh, in guild markets has gone almost to um, multi-decade lows, right? And, and it all precipitated with that, call it a budget disaster again. <laughs> That's when a lot of foreign investors seem to have exit, exited the, the guild market. Now, that could be an indicator of poor confidence in the UK and UK guilds and that outflow and or reduced sponsorship could have impacted guilds. So that those are the sort of two pillars that I kind of see the inflation and reduced sponsorship of guilds. Yeah, those those are the ones that I would say probably are up up there in terms of driving guild yields. 
Okay, thanks. And you mentioned the, the disastrous budget, famous mini budget last year. Do you think the UK is still suffering from a lack of credibility from that mini budget uh, from investors? And that's driving the guilt yields as well. From from the market participants that I speak to, there is a fear because we we are lucky that we we are quite a, a big group of uh, international portfolio managers within bearings who look at global fixed income. And when I speak to my peers who sit either in Asia or in the US, they show this lack of comfort around just putting money in the UK. So judging by that, you could say there is a temperature of we really don't know what's going to happen next. And so if we're going to make allocation, then allocations in the UK, they are going to be conservative. There is that. But would I say that there is a big loss of confidence around the UK? I wouldn't go as far as saying that because what the new prime minister has done is to come back and restore orthodoxy. And that is kind of calmed most of us in terms of what we expect for policy continuity. So, so on that basis, I wouldn't say that the UK is becoming a wild west. The UK has now gone back to what is best known for, which is orthodoxy. And for that reason, I, as an investor, have got a certain degree of confidence that if I put money in the UK, I can at least make a decent return. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned the, the uncertainty of the BOE's rate direction. I guess that's a big question mark for investors right now. Uh, and yesterday, I mean, we're recording this on the 23rd of June, so obviously yesterday the BOE hiked by 50 basis points. Was that, was firstly, was that a surprise for you, going for 50 basis points? Yes, it was a surprise, but that was before the inflation print where everybody else expected 25 because most major central banks are now going from 50s to 25s. So it was... Then this 50 basis points move became a certainty after that sort of sticky inflation print. Yeah, so somewhat of a surprise. Now, the question is, why should I be surprised when when the the narrative of sticky inflation is quite nice and clear in the UK? And for that reason, the Bank of England has to stamp out inflation. My main intention with with the way monetary policy is being conducted, not only in the UK, but when you look at most major central banks, is that there's quite a lot of rear view mirror action around it. So it's data dependency, but data dependence looking back. Now, which which then means once you look at your Bloomberg screens, you kind of know what the central bank is going to do. Now, I've been in markets for a fairly decent amount of time, and and I believe in the value of forecasts, the value of seeing where things are projecting to, and the value of monetary policy being designed and implemented on in a forward-looking basis. So where the Bank of England is, it's extremely difficult for them not to act. But equally, I think what's lacking now is that anchor, which is the anchor to forward-looking indicators. Now, on forward-looking indicators, if you look at global inflation dynamics, most most indicators are suggesting that inflation is going to soften. For the UK, it might be slower than other major regions. But to think that UK inflation is not going to fall meaningfully, especially the second half of this year, I find that hard to believe. So on that basis, I, I kind of think that policy is somewhat lacking an anchor. It's not forward-looking as it should, and that is slightly disappointing for, 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 for investors. Do you think it's useful if the BOE implemented what the Fed does with a dot plot path, sorry, implemented something like that? Would that increase transparency for investors in the direction of uh, rates and rate, uh, rate hikes? So the, the value of uh, dots is, is quite debatable because 
more often after, soon after presenting those dots, chair power dismisses them to say it's guesstimates for each member and it, it, it has no bearing on the future of monetary policy. And then when you look at the Bank of England, uh, sorry, the uh, Federal Reserve versus the ECB, and you and you ask yourself, ECB, which doesn't give you any dots, it's just whether you know whether it was a unanimous or not so unanimous or split decision, versus the Fed, which has got this, you know, transparency on whose dot is where. Well, there are no names, but gener- generally the, the, the dot plot. I do not think that the Fed comes out as clearer than the ECB. Right. So yeah. the value of those dots, the value of over communicating and the, the value of having this spurious accuracy on where the future should be. I don't see the value in that. Now, coming back to the UK, we used to have the fun charts and everything else. And more often, economic outcomes ended up being further away from those fun charts. So we, we had a period of the UK trying to be overly accurate about the future. That didn't work. So I do not think that going back to to dot plots or to trying to be or you know overly accurate in predicting i i do not think we we get much value from that what i am saying in terms of policy guidance is that the anchors have to be firm established and we follow them right so in a funny way some of the central banks that I admire in terms of how they're delivering policy are actually in emerging markets. They follow the rules and they stick by the rules. I can give you the Brazilian central bank. It follows that inflation up and down, right? And the Czech central bank, it does the same. There's strict rules and they follow those rules. Now for the Bank of England, it just feels like there's a little bit of I don't know, an art into how they're doing, they're administering policy. And when things become an art, they become less clear. And when they become less clear, markets become very volatile. That's where I'm coming from. Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, some interesting uh, uh, points you made there. And coming back on the on the rate direction, I mean, where do you see rates now reaching before the end of the year? Because this has been a moving number now, but it, but it does look like it's going to, you know, reach potentially 6% before the end of the year. I mean, where, where, where are your predictions on that? So... For full transparency, I was one of these people who were thinking four and a half should be the peak. Because in my in my view, a lot of the inflation we've seen globally has been supply side driven. Now, there is the demand side as well, given all of the fiscal push that was uh, done, especially in the US and the UK. That's also helping support inflation. But I think on the tradable part of inflation, also given that sterling had depreciated, there's a big input of in- UK inflation that's coming from that side. So I'd, I had always thought in my mind that the Bank of England was going to be quite cognizant that a lot of the inflation that's in the cake is not inflation that's demand driven and it's not inflation that they can control. Right. So for that reason, my terminal rate expectation had been lower than where we are now. I was around 4.5 tops. So you can see I'm already you know, if, uh, 25, 50 bips offside. Now, The next question is, okay, given the trajectory of how the Bank of England is responding to the data, where is the terminal rate likely to be? Now, if we judge how they are responding to spot inflation, and if we judge on the basis that UK inflation is proving stickier than other other jurisdictions, then we could end up with that 6% handle. Is it the right thing to do? That's another question now. Okay. And... And as a portfolio manager, I mean, are you seeing the level of gilt yields as as an opportunity? I mean, what what's your positioning on gilts at the moment? So yes, 
Uh, I find uh, guilds incredibly attractive, incredibly attractive. And that is, and I'll give my narrative, which starts from the growth perspective and then the inflation perspective and where I think rates will be over the next six to 12 months. So UK, like Europe, escaped a recession because gas prices came back our way. Right. And then and then uh, with that inflation sort of topped out sooner than expected. And now that inflation is declining, there's also an aspect of supporting demand through rising real incomes or less negative in this case. Labor markets have then become uh, well supported because, you know, that recession core didn't come through. So labor markets remained resilient. And now we're seeing wage growth coming through in response to rising inflation, you know, all these pay negotiations which are happening. So. Gas prices are helping, the recession expectations revised away, labor markets fairly strong, supporting consumption, right? Now, but you're still having rates rising and rising fast, and that is eventually going to hit the credit cycle. So on that basis, I expect that growth is going to weaken meaningfully, you know, beyond the next six months. So the recession expectation for me is one that's delayed, not erased. So that's the first bit. So I would say that the market expectations of number one, 6% terminal rate, that feels too high to me because the only time we were able to sustain those rates was in the boomy pre-GFC period. And I do not see UK growth now being able to support 6% rates. That's the first bit. The second bit is when you just look at the profile of uh, interest rates that's implied in the markets, So markets expect the 6% terminal rate and then expect rates to still be above 5% in two years and around 4.5% in three years. To me, this is just, I just struggled to find that possible because once you have rates that high and especially real rates being that high, the, the, the hit to consumption and growth is going to come through. It might be lagged a little bit and because of changing macroeconomic conditions, but that's coming. So my growth expectations for the UK are quite bearish, especially looking six to 12 months out. And for that reason, I think the Bank of England will be forced to then consider policy easing sooner than what the market implies. That's okay. the first bit. Then the second bit is the inflation. And I've already given you my uh, the way that I think about inflation, which is When you look at what happened to global inflation, it surged at the same time, and now you're starting to see declines at the same time. And and that limited dispersion across countries tells me that supply-side factors are still quite key. And one of the things that hasn't come down as much is food, food prices, at least in the UK. But we know that global food prices are declining. So food disinflation is another key component that's going to come through in the UK and that's going to drive inflation lower. So on that basis, the hikes that are coming through now, at some point, they will start looking like too much. Why? Because growth will be weak, because inflation will be weak, and because consumption will be going through the floor. That's my expectation. So how does that translate into an investment view? Well, when the economy is suffering and inflation is falling, you buy guilt. Now, the final question is, okay, how much value is there? If you look at the, uh, the, the one that I like to, 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 to throw around is if you look at the uh, UK Linker ETF, it's down almost 35 40%, depending on the period that you look at. 
right? And that has been driven by the, the surge in rates. Now, that sort of that deep derating in the value of guilds, and if you go to the long end, you can pick up some guilds at 35, 40 cents in a in a, in a that to me is easy pickings. So if you have a view of, say, uh, six months to two years out, and if you agree that the economy is going to slow, and if you agree that um, the Bank of England might be forced to ease policy sooner than expected, then in that environment, guilds just look as still. But you also then have to believe that policy orthodoxy is going to prevail because that could then you know, torpedo the whole thing. Okay, yeah, it's sort of like full circle, isn't it? I mean, the higher the higher guilt yields make it attractive as a buying opportunity, but then with the increased recession and stagflation fears, investors then go back into guilts anyway. So yeah, it's yeah. sort of like more 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 buyers for guilts in, in both situations, right? Uh, that, that, what, what's happening? And you mentioned the uh, the issuance as well as one uh, issue that investors have with. As a, as a reason for the higher guilt yields, you know, the record uh, issuance by the by the UK DMR and obviously with the BOE's Q2 operations as well, it's adding to a lot of guilts entering the hands of private investors more than ever before by, by some margin. But are the high yields making it easier for the UK in terms of navigating that issuance programme and sort of trying and sort of mitigating volatility in that sense? That is a, a very difficult question to, to answer because the actual details around the digestion of issuance, they are slightly opaque. But from what we understand, international investors are still there. The question is, are they buying as much as they were before? Now, the flows data would suggest not as much. Because remember I said, when you look at the portfolio flows data, foreign investors have been selling gilts hand over fist. At least that's what the data would suggest. Based on that, the, the sum total of the picture is one of really high issuance mostly into the private sector hands, like you've just said, because the Bank of England is stepped out, right? They are no longer buying as, as they were before. So it's a case of higher issuance into private hands and probably into a smaller base, investor base. So that in itself is always going to sort of uh, shake the market a little bit. Now, the better predictors of how well the market is receiving the, 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 the auction is the bid covers, and the bid covers have been relatively healthy. They are not frenetic like they were before, but they are still relatively healthy. And then the second bit would be how these bonds trade in secondary after issuance. Now, there the, the picture is relatively mixed. So if I take a step back and take all of this together, I would say the market is generally struggling to digest, to, to digest the issuance. And that's part of the reason why we are getting, you know, the, some of this market weakness that we have. Now, does it make sense? It does make sense because if an investor is not sure, they would want to see a significant concession into these auctions such that, you know, if the market weakens after the auction, they are not really left holding the baby. So that's generally the dynamic we see. So I would say high issuance is partly responsible for higher yields. But I don't think I could be emphatic in as much as I would say uh, it's responsible for this increase in guilt yields because I think that would be too too accurate or even spurious even. Yeah, yeah, there's more sort of fundamental issues you talked about. And just, just going back to your point about your where you're positioning in guilt, so you said it's attractive, uh, you know, you mentioned index-linked guilts. Uh, are you more favoured towards the short end at the moment? Mm, that's a really good question. I tend to like the long end of the curve. 
because there is the convexity protection that you get from, from buying those long bonds. Being at the short end of the curve is attractive because yields are really high. The curve is inverted, uh, deeply inverted. So you get this really good juice by being you know, anywhere five years and under. I am not buying that because this policy uncertainty that we were talking about, this inflation uncertainty that we were talking about, if the Bank of England ends up raising rates to six, six, six and a quarter or six and a half, then being at the short end is likely to be a lot more painful than sitting with relatively smaller positions at the longer end of the curve. That's how I tend to think about the market. So effectively, what I'm saying is, as long as this policy uncertainty persists, as long as this digestion of issuance remains a little bit mixed, then you're likely to see the market trade weaker. And in that case, the the balance of risk is the curve continuing to flatten even more, led by cheapening of the front end. And for that reason, I think to be defensive, it's probably better to own long bonds than uh, versus versus the short the short end. Now I know this is contentious because when you're at the longer end as well, there is the duration risk that you're running. But I think with smaller positions, that's manageable. But when would I go into the short end? It's at a time when I think that there is now sufficient weakness or signs of weakness in the economy that the Bank of England will be forced to start easing policy. I think that's when you start getting the value of positioning at the front end of the curve. So in summary, I would say front end is attractive, but the un- uncertainty around the BOE and policy and everything else just makes me a bit wary of being at the front end of the curve. I like the long end of the curve because there is the convexity protection and also I can manage my risk uh, fairly close there by just sizing the positions quite well. And uh, the, the final thing I would say is because we are global investors and we look at uh, developed market relative value. When I look at the long end, the UK is extremely cheap. And yield-wise, it's, it's at parity with, almost at parity with Italy. That's how cheap it is. It's, it's way wider than Greece. So when I look at some of those statistics, I, I end up thinking, wow, the UK is among the cheapest, obviously along Australia and New Zealand, but I like the UK quite a lot. Okay, from a relative value basis compared to other European and obviously US treasuries as well, that, that sort of spread differential. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking at the nominal spread there, yes. Okay. We've mentioned here about the, the liquidity issues with gilts, obviously, with, with what's happening in the gilt market. Do you expect that to continue for some time, the sort of draining liquidity uh, in the gilt market? So the liquidity is, uh, is this phantom thing that people talk about, and it's really hard to characterize. But if I had to sum it up, I would say, we know when there is a lot of money being pumped into a system and 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 that supports the market and we know that when when there is a lot of draining of liquidity in the market and that tends to to then result in a competition for capital and for that assets are discounted because people will be saying well it's a beauty contest why should i buy this over that now for the uk depending on Whatever data you look at, you can start with QT, you can start with the Bank of England's balance sheet. You can also go into the rates dynamic, which obviously when you're hiking, you're draining liquidity. We talk about this higher issuance. We know that you know, in aggregate, this is a system that is experiencing a net liquidity drain. So in that environment, as you would expect, volatility remains relatively high. 
up until you know a time when we know that okay now policy is at an even keel that the bank of england has plateaued and is now trying to just keep things where they are up until that point i expect these dynamics to maintain i.e liquidity to remain challenged and the implied volatility in uk rate markets is likely to remain elevated but again i have to say that when we discuss these things about the uk it ends up making looking making the uk look like it's an exception it is not an exception some of these dynamics i'm mentioning same dynamics in the us same in in uh, in in europe and a little bit in canada and australia as well so the the, the uk is not an exception here it's a global phenomenon as well okay but suppose where the uk is an exception is what we talked about earlier i mean the inflation issue it does seem like the uk has a more uh, a structural inflation issue than, U- than the US and Europe. And what would you make of that? And also just tied to that, do you think the BOE is in a state of, of a crisis of confidence as well? I'll just link to that as well. So I'll start with the final question. Is the BOE in a, in a crisis of confidence? I do not think, again, when I look globally, I do not think that uh, the, you know, the way the Bank of England is behaving is any different, right? So I want to give you a few examples. First is obviously we know the 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 pain that chair power went through from transitory to uh, now uh, is persistent inflation and how he said to explain his flip flops. You go to Canada and Australia, they they had stopped hikes, saying ah oh, we're not going to do anymore. Now they've resumed hikes. In fact, Australia was was um, uh, the in in Australia the Reserve Bank of Australia was harshly criticised for how it administered policy, especially into COVID and out. In a, you know, the ECB, we know the noise in the ECB. So the Bank of England is not in a different spot here. And all of these central banks that I'm giving you, they're all looking at past data and responding to past data. So it's the same. And when the more interesting thing is when you look at their mon- the monetary policy statements, they all sound the same. We are hiking because we're worried that inflation may get entrenched. We're hiking because we're seeing wages coming through. So wages, higher wages mean higher risk of persistent demand and higher risk of persistent inflation. The narrative is the same. So I do not think that I would pinpoint the Bank of England to say they are suffering a crisis of confidence. But living in the UK, you get the feeling that the pressure that's coming through, like some of the press releases, press reports, ends up pushing them in a particular way. And particularly after this last inflation report, you just feel like they had to respond because you know, everyone was saying we really need to temp- stamp out inflation. So if they had done a 25 basis points hike, people were going to say that's that's too little, right? So so to me, there is that. But I, I want to emphasize that I do not think that the, the Bank of England is, is in any way very different from other majors that we look at. This one is it, it's it's a raging debate in the markets, right? It's a raging debate. I mean, there there have been rims and rims of papers written around UK productivity, that uh, you know UK's productivity has declined, wages have remained resilient, and for that reason, structurally, the output gap is much smaller. I.e., the economy is not going to grow as ma- as fast, but the output gap is much smaller, and for that reason, it's a lot more inflationary. So th- there are rims and rims of papers around this. What's my view? I think I have no better insight into UK output dynamics and whether those output dynamics makes UK a structurally higher inflation economy. I do not think I have better insight than most people in the market. 
What I will say, though, is that historically, the UK economy seems to have generated more inflation than, say, Europe, and, and at times more inflation than, than the US. So there, there is something in there. And some of that inflation has been also due to the, the weak. But at the moment, do I emphasize this stru- structural inflation more than this supply side inflation? I struggle with that. I really, really struggle with that. So I end up thinking that there could be a structural inflation problem, but I think it's being overblown in the way that is being described because I do not think that anyone out there has got a precise handle on how much structural inflation is in the UK versus Europe versus the US. So for that reason, I think it makes for very interesting discussions, very interesting intellectual discussions, but actually it's very difficult to dissect and come up with saying this is the quantum and this is how much I think this quantum is going to last into the future. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I think it's a debate which is like, how long is a piece of string? Okay, yeah. It's hard to assess, isn't it? Hard to compare. Yeah. Yeah. And say the UK has a more of a structural inflation issue than the yeah. parts of the world. Um, I will say, though, that on most projections that I do, because I do consume a lot of the sell side reports, on a, on a lot of projections, UK inflation is set to fall. The only problem is it's going to fall uh, later and sl- more slowly than other regions. So it's, it's a case of hitting the target later than expected, but not a case of failing to hit the target. Right. And and for that reason, I do not think then that it's a structural inflation issue. It's it's just about how we, how the you know energy sub- subsidies were dished out and and uh, you know and other market quirks around food inflation, you name it. So that's where I see the disturbances lying. But the fact that there are these disturbances doesn't make the UK a structurally high inflation region. I do not think that. Okay, fair enough. Um, It'd be really interesting to get your views, Brian, as a, as a portfolio manager and expert in this market uh, across, you know, the, the rise in guilt yields and the the subsequent inflation and QT. Um, but um, perhaps we'll just um, end on one final thought, um, getting your thoughts on the lessons learned. I mean, going back to last year's sort of famous mini budget and the lessons learned, I guess, from from the LDI crisis. Just sum that up. That's, that's a very good question. The... The obvious lessons from uh, from the the mini budget was that I think there was a, a, a feeling that the UK could be the exception to the rule, and that I think we've seen that the markets can punish most countries, especially the ones that are relatively small. But even the US, we've seen uh, you know what the debt ceiling debate did to the front end of the curve. So I think the idea that era of global capital flows in an era where investors can choose uh, in a beauty contest where to leave their money. In that era, I do not think there are any exceptions, especially when you have an open capital account. So the lesson is good policy. There is no substitute for good policy. And I think at that time, the government made a schoolboy error of of assuming that they, they could have been the exception to the rule. There were good reasons to have that budget. And and these are fairly smart people who came up with that budget, uh, probably way smarter than me. But it was the wrong thing to do at that time, i.e. to overstimulate when inflation is high. And that's why we got punished. So no substitute for good policy. That's what I would say. The, the one thing that, again, that you find in financial market crisis is that things 
are not known at all up until they become a problem. And the LDI issue, you know, the connection between the budget yield surge and the LDI issue was something that nobody foresaw. And then it just it just came to the fore. And from where we saw where we sat, I mean, there was, you know, it's probably less written about, but you could see the movement in LDI strategies impacting the most remote strategies like investments in emerging markets, local currencies, or investments in currencies, or investments in in in, in other credit credit markets, because the funds that are raised in this segment are invested in many different places, and also the, the yeah so, so yeah that's what I would say is is, is the most important thing. I, I, the interconnectivity in financial markets is always underappreciated. And yeah, so it just means then policy has to be administered with caution. And my worry is that when you look at how monetary policy is being administered now, I do not think that caution is central to to the case. Okay, thank you. I think that's, I think that's a good sort of message. That there's no substitute to good policy. I think that's a good piece yeah. of advice for for any sort of country and, and central bank there. And um but yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Brian, for your expert analysis and comments on, on the on the state of the guilt market. Uh, it's been very interesting to listen to you and talking to you. And to our listeners, do stay tuned for more podcasts from the uh, OMFIF's Sovereign Debt Institute. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.